on my things. For instance, if you have a bunch of wood sitting in your garage that you plan on making a dining table, its complete or mature form is when it's finally holding your dinner with guests around you, right? But if you are like many people who have hobbies that you have good intentions about but never fulfill, a lot of times that wood stays in immature form, just boards, right? So that's the concept of getting apart. And we can see how complete would also work for that or perfect would also work for that. So that's the idea behind it. And so when we look at maturity in Christ, we're, what, we're, what we're looking at is what are human beings made for? What is our intended end? And how do we reach that? And this is a concept that goes all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, right? Where God made human beings in his image. And he gave them a job to care over his creation under him. And so um, one way that was put uh, by, the exact document doesn't matter, but I think put it, it really well, is that what is human beings? What are we made for? What is the chief end of man? Right? What is human being at their maturity? And it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what we were made for as human beings. And if you're reading the story of the Bible, you know that we have a problem very early on. You see, human beings rebel against God within the first couple chapters of the very first book. And so now how are we going to glorify God when we've rebelled against him and now, because sin has entered the world, we have no way to get to that desired end of glorifying God or even of enjoying him. And so we're left with the question as we're reading along. If human beings can't be who they were created to be, what's left? Do we, do we just wipe them off and start over? And in fact, that question does pop up later. We see the story where this guy named Noah he is considered the only one of all the earth who is not completely evil, and even he has some issues if you're reading the story. And so God says, man, I, I just want to completely start clean, wipe all the earth, but I will save Noah out of grace. Right? And so we see this story pop up, and the question becomes, and it's a very important question for us, if human beings can't reach their proper end, what do we do? Are they good for anything anymore? Should God just wipe them out and start over? But as we keep reading, the beauty of the New Testament is that God solves this problem. I actually want to invite you to take a step back with me. Um, we're going to just focus on these two verses, but to understand them fully, we have to understand how the author of the letter to the church in Colossians intended them. So if you take a step back to verse 15, what you see is this author goes into this almost poetic worship of Jesus. Now, Jesus, we believe as Christians, is both fully God, specifically the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, but he also became fully human. And this is what it says about him. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. This language should remind us of what it's saying in Genesis. In other words, human beings were made to bear God's image. And here we have a character show up who is the image. And not only that, but this character enters into humanity. What is going on here? What it's telling us is that Jesus is the only human being who's ever reached full maturity and been what human beings were made to be. Because he 
lived a fully perfect life, the only one who's ever lived a fully human life without sin. But not only that, so we have Jesus as the fully perfect human one reached full maturity, but if that were it, we'd be in trouble. Because all that would mean as Christians is we have an example of how to be human, but no way to actually do it. Right? And so we we would be in deep trouble. It's, we no longer have the excuse, well, I didn't know how, because we know how, we just couldn't do it. But it keeps going. If you keep reading, what you see is that it is for Jesus and by for, sorry, it is for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. So this image, it is by him that everything we see, including us, was created. Not only that, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him as well. It is through Jesus that everything exists, including us, was created. And lastly, for him. If you wonder why does earth exist, why do we exist as human beings? We exist for Jesus, to bring him glory and to enjoy him forever. He is the purpose of humanity. But we keep reading, and, and what? He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. Before it said he was the firstborn of creation, but now the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation, the truly human one, the only one so far who's ever existed, but he's also the first of a new humanity. One that was rescued from the consequences of sin, namely death. So this, this is what I'm getting at. To be human, we lost that ability in the fall, but Christians believe that because Jesus came, he lived the perfect human life to full maturity. He died taking the punishment for sin on himself, rose again. That means that everyone who puts their faith in him has new life. Right? As we see through the book of Colossians, what we'll see is this image whereby we die to our old life and we get a new life in Jesus. Right? So to be mature as a Christian, we can't do it on our own. But because Jesus and his gospel through grace has given us a new life, we can actually be what we were created to be. You see, when, when I start to talk about maturity, we kind of have a weird relationship with that word in our culture, don't we? On the one hand, immaturity is bad. Almost everyone recognizes that. On the other hand, though, is maturity all that good? <laughs> if you were called mature, would you take that as a compliment? Sometimes, depending on the context. Other times you might be saying, "Do I? am I getting a gray hair? Am I like, what, what are you trying to imply there, right? Or you might be saying, oh, are you just saying I'm boring? I can't have any fun? What do you mean by mature? Right? And so our culture doesn't really value maturity. Yes, we recognize immaturity is a bad thing, but we don't see maturity necessarily as a good thing. And sometimes I think that kind of soaks its way into our lives as Christians. When we look at the Christian life, we understand the gospel and the implications that we can start over forgiven of our sins. But then we look at Christian maturity, mature in Christ, as kind of an optional thing. It's like, yeah, some Christians do it. They're really like, super saints, right? They, they're the mature ones. Not, this isn't necessarily for me. But if we're looking at the story and we're looking at what the Bible is saying is this, that no, the whole beauty of the gospel is that finally we get to be mature. 
Finally, we get to be who we were created to be all along. Before Jesus showed up, we were just kind of living lives that were never really reach fulfillment, never really live up to what we were created to be. Only in Jesus can we now, through maturity, be a human being as we were created to be a human being, right? And so the Bible paints this picture. This is a good thing, and it is for all Christians. Guess what? All of us will be made mature, right? That's going to happen. And from the, in the meantime, until Jesus returns and makes us complete and whole and perfect, mature, we are being matured to be like Jesus more and more and more, right? So much so that Paul, it seems, is saying, that the whole effort, all of his suffering that he has to go through, all the effort that he has, and in fact, beyond that, because he doesn't even have the ability, all the effort that Jesus himself gives him is spent to present these people fully mature in Christ. It is a valuable thing, a worthwhile thing that all of us should be aiming after. So that leaves us the question, okay, we understand why maturity is important, how it's to reach the fullness of who we are as human beings. But what does that practically mean? These are just big ideas, right? Science kind of philosophical, right? But what does it actually practically mean in the here and now? How do we live as full human beings? Because we've been given that opportunity by Jesus. How do we do that here in this world? What does it practically mean for how I live day to day? And if we keep reading Colossians, you will find this image. So everyone turn with me from Colossians 1 and turn to Colossians 3. I kind of want to show you this here. The uh, Paul here uses an image that actually gets repeated a lot in the Bible, kind of, of, of taking on and putting off clothes. So let me just read it to you. Starting verse 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, in other words, you have a new life, right? You can now reach maturity. You have a new life. Um, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. I want to just echo a couple of those themes because it's what we've been talking about. Christ, who is your life? Because of Jesus, we now have a new life, and that life is not from us. It's from an outside source, namely Jesus. He gives us his life, right? Then it says this, put to death, therefore, that word therefore is to say, okay, now that we've talked about this, this is what you're to do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, what it's saying here is not just saying like, okay, well, we should be just purely spiritual beings. We don't have flesh. We don't have a body. Put that to death. No, that's, that's what crazy cults believe. I advise strongly against it. Actually, the Bible says we will always have physical bodies. That's part of what it means to be human, and that's a good thing, right? You're saying, how can that be a good thing? I know what this physical body is like. Well, it's a good thing because it gets renewed and made perfect. Okay, we don't have to deal with the growing pains and the dying pains that we go through. Okay, so um, put to death what is earthly in you. What does that mean? Well, keep reading. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covenantness, which is idolatry. Right? In other words, 
to covet, to desire something that is not yours is idolatry. Why is that idolatry? Because if you're saying that I want this thing so bad that I do not have, then, then I am missing what God has given me. There's something in my life that is falling short because God hasn't given it to me. And so you look to it to fulfill some need that only God himself can fulfill. That's why covetousness is idolatry. And this is what we're supposed to put to death, right? So we take off our old life, our old sinful life where we used to live for our own desires, our own selfish ambitions. Let's look at what each of these actually means. Sexual immorality. That is where you use another person for your own pleasure outside of God's design intention from for sexual pleasure, which is in marriage, where two people are looking after each other's interest and each other's pleasure, right? So it is something good that has been turned inward and selfish. What is impurity, passion, evil desire? All of these two are related to a relationship with God and a relationship to others, where we take what is good and we turn it in on ourselves in a way that violates God's command. The same with covetousness. We desire something someone else has, right? It is this inward-focused, selfish-seeking attitude that sin creates in each of us. This is what it means to say uh, um, that we have lost the ability to be fully human. Why? Because if our end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but we're only focused on ourselves, our own needs and our own desires and our own wants, even at the exp uh, expense of God's commands, then how on earth can you ever glorify God and enjoy him forever? You can't. So you take off this old life. Jesus, through his crucifixion, killed that. You no longer have to live this way. right? But that's not all. It's not just taking something off. Actually, Jesus warns about this. He tells this parable about this demon that's an inhabiting house that gets kicked out. Well, unless you fill that house, Jesus warns that he's going to come back with all his buddies and it's going to be worse off than before. In other words, if we take just take off our own sinful desires in the flesh, but we don't replace it with Jesus's life, Jesus's good desires, right? What happens is we just fall back to sin and even more so than before. Uh, we see that in normal life, right? We, if, if we took, for instance, an an I'm going to get in trouble with a pharmacist's wife, but if we take an antibiotic that can, that's just broad spectrum and kills everything, the, the danger in that is what can grow back might not be good for you, right? And so you're worse off than you were before. So take off, put to death these sinful desires, but also put on, it says here in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In other words, this is talking about your relationship with God and your relationship with your fellow human beings. How are you to treat them? How are you to interact with them? And notice, too, especially, why are we supposed to forgive each other? How are we supposed to do it? Well, in the same way that Jesus has forgiven you. You see, as Christians, we are enabled to be kind to one another because Jesus was first kind to us. 
we are able to forgive one another because Jesus forgave us. We have this ability now. Before, we were stuck because we're so focused on ourselves and our own sin, so turned inward, that when someone does something wrong to you, that's a violation of your God, right? You, you're your own God. But if your God has already forgiven you for all the evil you've done to him, how much smaller of a thing is it to forgive your fellow human being? Because you're turned outward. You're able to live this life of forgiveness. By the way, so much better. You don't have to hold on to bitterness. You don't have to constantly be thinking about your own desires and wants and needs, which is such a lonely way of life. You can now begin to think about other people and their needs and wants and look outside of yourself to something greater. This you can only do in Jesus. But what's interesting about this whole list, by the way, is verse 14. All these are good, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiving one another. But then there's something even more superior. Look here at verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is this saying here? It's saying to be mature, essentially, is this, is to love in the same way that Jesus loves. If you read almost any book in the New Testament, it always jumps to this. Love, love, love like Jesus, right? If you look at many of the verses in the New Testament that talk about maturity, you'll see that they all go back to love as well. One of the ones I often think about, Paul says that, when I was a child, I thought like a child and reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put these childish things behind. And very shortly after that, you see the verses where it says this, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. What's he trying to do here? Connect that to be fully human to the biggest extent is to be able to love like Jesus loved. Elsewhere, I think of a, a, a verse in Hebrews that talks about maturity. The author warns the people. They should have at that time known enough of their scripture that they should have been able to teach others, but they were needing teaching. And if we look at that, maturity just looks like being able to know the Bible and teach it. That's true. But if you look at why this is important, the author is not just saying, hey, you don't know your Bible, so you're immature. He's saying you don't know your Bible in a way you can pass it on to others. What is that about? That's about love. In other words, yes, you need to understand the scripture. It's going to help you. The more knowledge and doctrine and theology and scripture teaching you have, it's going to help you. But more than that, it also gives you the ability to love other Christians who don't know it as well, to help them, to teach them, to guide them. All these verses at maturity end up back here. Why? Because it says love binds everything together with perfect harmony. In other words, you can be kind to people, but if you're not doing it out of love, what are you even doing? You can be humble, you can have humility, but if it's not a humility born out of a love for another that loves them so much that you, that you actually give preference to them over yourself, then what are you even doing? You're just putting on a show, right? Elsewhere in the Bible, it puts it this way. Even if you could prophesy or you could speak in the tongues of angels, but you don't have love. You're just a noisy gong. Think about that image for a second. All you're talking is just beating on this gong. That's all you're doing. You're not doing anything significant if it's not born out of love. But because of what Jesus has done in us, 
we now have the ability to love one another. Why? Because we were first loved to the point that the Son of God himself became a human being, lived a perfect life, despite that, took the punishment of sin on himself, died and rose again, so that we could be born again and made children of God. Right? That's the beauty of the gospel. When we call you to Christian maturity, this is what we're calling you to. When you call you to be more mature in your reading of the Bible, to make a habit of reading daily, of praying daily, of studying the Bible, which takes, by the way, maturity does take intellectual effort. We're not calling you all to be academics, right? We're not calling you all to study Greek and Hebrew or to, to get a seminary degree, but we are calling you to use your brains to understand what the scripture says, to put mental effort into it. But why? Not just for knowledge for its own sake, but so that you can better love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can better point them to the scripture. You can better help them discern good from evil by pointing to them what God says in his word. So it's a knowledge whose end is love, right? That's what maturity is about. This is what we're calling you to. And this is why I think this is verse 28 and 29, going back to the beginning. It is probably the best summary that I found for what we are doing here at this church, what our mission, what our ministry is, and that is this, just so we all remember again, verse 28 in chapter 1. Him, being Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is our goal for you, that you get to be fully who you were always created to be. You can give up, take off, put to death the selflessness in you, and you can put on Jesus' love and compassion and life. You get to be mature. You get to be who you were created to be all along, and that is our earnest desire for you. All that's good, but we might be looking at things and even have a desire for that. If you're a Christian, you should have a desire for this, to be like Jesus, to live fully as you're created to be. But you might be wondering, but how? <laughs> right? Anyone who has ever tried to forgive another person, even if they got their words out, might in their heart be like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm doing that out of love. feels more like obligation at the moment, right? How many of you have been there? Are shown kindness, but you're like, I don't feel like showing kindness. <laughs> I'll be humble. I won't take the stage right now, but if someone else put me in the spotlight, that'd be really nice, right? All of us have been there. How do we actually get to this point, right? And I want to show you, not only does Paul say that his earnest desire for the Colossians is maturity in Christ, but he also shows them the how. And the first one I want to show you it's to point out this, and that is that when Paul talks about the Colossians, the first thing he talks about is prayer, right? The first thing we have to understand for how to ourselves become mature, but also those we're discipling, help them to gain maturity is this. We can't do it. We can't make ourselves mature. We can't make the people we're discipling mature. It is beyond our ability. So the first and the last and the middle thing that we need to do is pray to the one who can. Right? It, it, prayer is not just something we do that's nice in Christianity. Prayer is the thing that changes everything. Why? Because 
God's children are talking to him, and it's only God who can change hearts. So looking at verse 28, how else? How else does Paul do it? Because there seems to be he needs God to do it, but it's not like Paul just prays and then sits back and is like, God's going to work, right? Like, I prayed, so the Colossians are good now, right? No, that's not what Paul's doing here. So after he prays, what does he do? It says this, him we proclaim. In other words, proclaim Jesus. Point how Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being, lived a perfect life, died, rose again for our sake. In other words, proclaim the gospel again and again and again. It is only the gospel that changes us. Only the gospel can. So proclaim the gospel, stay other. And when you proclaim the gospel, not only are you changed, but the people you're proclaiming to are changed as well. Take every opportunity to point to Jesus. And then it says, warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. What is this talking about? Where do we get all of this wisdom? Well, if we keep reading into chapter 2, what we'll see in verse 2 is this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all riches, a full assurance, understanding, and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. How do we teach with all wisdom? How do we warn with all wisdom? By pointing continually to Christ, right? Keep going back to Christ and his word. The Bible isn't just a nice addition in the Christian life. It has to be the center. Whenever we give advice, we should give it from the Bible. That's not saying like, great, have a quote for every single issue. Although like having scripture verse that you have memorized for occurrences is good, but it does mean that your wisdom should come from your continued study of the Word of God. It should saturate inside of you that we can pull from what God is telling us, right? Go to the Word which talks about Christ. Continue back to the Gospel, how we are saved by grace through faith, right? And that is the basis for our wisdom and the basis for our teaching, right? So that we can present everyone mature. What does that mean practically for us? If you find that you are not a very good person at teaching others or having discernment of what's right and wrong, if you find that you're not good at giving advice based on the Bible, what does that mean for you? Well, it means that you need to keep coming back to it again and again and again in the preached word, the sung word, the read word on your own Bible study time with other Christians who are wiser than us. Keep coming back and finding God's word. And as he you do that, his spirit will put his word inside of you, right? And we keep going back to it and back to it, right? How else do we find maturity? As we keep reading, we see this, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then in verse 29, it says this, for this I toil, struggling. So Paul says it takes effort. He not only toils, he works hard, but he also struggles. Earlier in the chapter, it said he also suffered, right? For our maturity and for other people's maturity that we are discipling, we need to put effort into it. Sometimes it's hard discipling people who are new to Christ, who have all these issues and baggage and other things. The Bible tells us that it takes toil and it takes struggle. But here's the good news, because the, the sentence, by the way, didn't stop there. By whose power, strength, energy does Paul struggle? 
I think you know the answer, but we'll keep reading. With all his energy. Whose energy? Who is his? Let me ask you guys. Who is his in this verse? Whose energy? Jesus. With all of Jesus's energy. That Jesus, that he powerfully works within me. Don't do this on your own strength. It, it'll fail really quickly. Right? The only way we can hope to be made mature and the only way we can hope to help others become mature is if we are continually relying on Jesus to do the work, right? By the way, that is incredibly freeing. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do when you're discipling someone is when they're not listening to you, not take that personally. You're like, this is going to end really badly for you, right? The Bible is pretty clear. This is not good. How can you do that? Like, if you are not relying on Jesus' strength, what that can quickly turn into is you're like, if I just worded it differently, if I just spent more time with them, I don't know. You start spending, staying up late. You're thinking, how can I, through my effort, get them to understand this? And you can't. Like, you're not strong enough, smart enough. Uh, you're not. You don't have good enough language to do it. You can't do it. So what you do is you point them to the Bible. You pray to them. And you wait for God to act. And that is so freeing because I don't have to take their mistakes personally. I can run there for them. I mourn with them when what they do has incredible consequences and hurts them. But I don't have to be their savior. They have one. And he's much better than us, right? And so continue to go to Jesus for his energy that he works in us. We do that by trusting him in faith to work. We do that by doing what he has called us to, the, the struggle and the toil, and then waiting for him for the results, right? Uh, one of the things um, that's very tempting whenever you're talking with people who are active in a church is to always be thinking numbers. Like, if we just did X, Y, Z, we could bring more people to Jesus. And by the way, the, the impulse behind that, to see more people come to Jesus is good, but sometimes we forget that we don't bring anyone to Jesus by ourselves. We don't save anyone. We do the work, we share the gospel, we pray, and then we let Jesus save them through his spirit. Right? Same thing with discipling people. We don't change people. That's Jesus' work. We just do the work. We do work hard at understanding the scripture. We work hard at understanding how the scripture applies to life. We show it through our own lives. And then we let God work, right? This is, should be encouraging to you parents, right? The reason we're talking here on Graduation Sunday about maturity is this is the work of you parents. If you have children, your ministry that God has given you is to raise your child up into maturity in Christ. And it is a work that you can't actually do. <laughs> you don't have the ability to do it. And so what do you do? You spend a lot of time in prayer. You spend a lot of time in God's Word. You continually, again and again, point to Jesus and His Word. You live a life that shows your children how to live like Jesus. And then you keep praying again because they're not going to listen a lot of the time. And so you wait on Jesus to do the work. And you wait on Jesus' grace because guess what else is not going to happen? You're not going to give a perfect example all the time. You're not going to teach the Bible very clearly all the time. And so when you do things imperfectly, 
You wait on Jesus' grace and you see how he is sufficient everywhere we are not, right? And that's what we're called to. Christian maturity is the opportunity to finally love like Jesus does. Imperfect for now until Jesus returns, but even in that imperfection, Jesus in his grace shows up and is more than sufficient. So I'm going to close with that thought. Um, and and um, we're going we're gonna to sing one more song, and then we're going to get to celebrate a new Christian entering into the Christian community with baptism. So, um, Father, I just want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to be fully human, to be fully mature as you have made us to be. Thank you for this new life that we have in Jesus. Thank you that he works even where we fail, that he is sufficient even when we are insufficient. I pray that we rely on you and your strength, that we press on towards maturity, and that we make discipling our focus as a church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.